0: Good evening, everyone. Um, Sharda's talk um, sparked a lot of memories and associations last night and um, did such a beautiful job of actually bringing alive into the room. the Actually, the freedom that comes from opening to life as it actually is, to the truth of, in this case, the truth of Dukkha. And her wonderful reminders of the obvious fact that is so beautifully expressed in the Wiley's dictionary, definition of birth, the leading cause of death. <laughs> in my own version, the definition of birth, the leading cause of sickness, old age, death, not getting what you want all the time not wanting what you get uh, all the usual suspects of lamentation grief sorrow and this is not this is not just some of us this is all of us and just to be able to share in this in this universal truth and not stray away from it and just to sit in the middle of it this really is the in some ways the invitation of our practice and so today as I was reflecting on that I was remembering times in my practice where it was as though I didn't intend for this to happen but at each case where something I guess I would call profoundly difficult arose I went through my usual reactions and then it was only when through just the grace of the practice of the the natural uh, wisdom that becomes the cause of surrendering, that very same painful experience became the cause of, of an opening. And the one I was thinking of just now when I was sitting, you may have thought that we're sitting up here empty minded and quiet and <laughs> filled with love and kindness, but i was I was noodling about what I was going to talk about tonight. <laughs> and that's the beautiful thing about being in this role is I can con we get to a chance to on a even though share things that that hopefully are encouraging and inspiring we also get a chance to confess our delusions to just describe crazy things that we thought did and a few of those just popped into my mind but this one was a little bit more serious and it was it was sparked recently again because i i every year i get the i have the good fortune of going to lead a retreat at the insight meditation society which is our sister center in massachusetts and when I go there, many of my memories and associations of having spent literally cumulatively years in silence there, um, which I always feel tremendously grateful for, but it was, it was, good and bad and and difficult, and but very, very uh, confidence and faith inducing for the practice. And the memory I was having this evening that also came up when I was there this time is a, a time that I was in a single room at this center. And, and in those days, the single rooms were about, my room was about seven or eight feet wide, about 10 feet long. And during certain resolve periods, I would do all my sitting and my walking in the room. And someone would sign up to to put a meal at your doorstep. And so things get pretty wild in there. (laughs) But I was also several months into a practice period where I was experiencing the, the joys and the sorrows, you know, things coming and going a lot. And there was a parallel process as the world became more in some ways microscopic more moment to moment you know in in some way in some ways our whole life is really just an unfolding of moments you know that we never truly go anywhere we're always right exactly where we are and any thought of going even when we're going we're right where we are and but it's really just moment at a time and it became very clear in the in the quiet of our practice and maybe you're getting glimpses of that even here that it's just moments last one is gone the next one hasn't happened there's just this one it's the totality of your life everything of your life has converged on this moment everything else is imaginary that dawned on me very quickly but at the same time as the as the whole view of life was breaking down into these simple moments and in some ways being deconstructed at the same time as my heart and mind got quieter and quieter, I became more and more vulnerable, as we do. And it reveals this amazing innate tenderness that is a heart or a mind that's open is just meant to be incredibly tender. And there is a, in some ways a parallel process with this kind of opening that can happen if, if, we, if you're if you stay with it in a, for longer periods. And this can happen in the course of our daily life if, we're, if we give ourselves entirely to the process of, of opening. But there was also a feeling of regressing a little bit. I felt very, very young. And doing all my practice in my room, I didn't realize this would be a long story, but I guess it is. <laughs> doing my practice in my room, I, I had a chance to because, I'm, because we have senses and our mind tends, especially for the things that we see, our eye is the most easy, easily seduced into commentary. It's, you know, I, and when I would look in my room, this very simple room it, that had no closet, all my clothes were hanging up on, the, on a rack. And I kept looking over at those clothes and my mind would immediately go to some little judgment that I had too many clothes with me. And I began to track that judgment and, and this little aversion and a little self-recrimination ju- self for, for having too much stuff with me. And then I would look around and I'd see that I made it very comfortable. And then I would judge myself for not being a real renunciate because I brought a nice tropical picture to put on the wall. <laughs> extra pillows <laughs> to soften it for me and... Uh, and yet, here I was, literally for months sitting in this room, but meanwhile, I carried this judgment at the being you know I'd heard a lot of the teachings and the and the teachings say, well, there's basically three common character types: there's the greed or the grasping type that's uh that's always looking for what they want and 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 caught up in in dependency on." On having lots of stuff around and getting stuff, there's the aversive type that's always looking around and seeing what's wrong with everything and and making everything about how the world should be and how everyone should be and how they should be and just a a a, a tendency toward aversion and the deluded type tends to be a, a little bit confused and often spaced out and and the. Example often given is when you go into a hotel room, the greed type goes right for the bed that they want. The aversive sees what's wrong with the room. The deluded type says, put me anywhere. You know, I don't care what bed I'm in. And often, I think that the diluted types may be the, the happiest. <laughs> <laughs> so I would judge myself as being a greed type, even though we are all of them. If you didn't have all three, you wouldn't be one of us. I mean, we're, it's just human. But we tend to have one that dominates a little bit more. So I was sitting in the room, and the world was getting very, very microscopic momentary, and I was regressing all at the same time. And there was a point in my practice where everything felt as though it was just too much. I was experiencing that, that uh, flavor of what Sharda spoke about, sankara dukkha. The dukkha of, she called it, I think you call it, general misery. It's often described as also the dukkha of, the, of conditions, the relentlessness of conditions that keep impinging on our senses, and we have to just keep dealing with them again and again. And, it's, and life, you know, sometimes we want it to stop, and it's one of the reasons many of us love to go to sleep so much. Is a, it's kind of the, sometimes called the poor person's nirvana, is, <laughs> is sleeping. But I was at this point, tender and. and very aware, in a way, and it was too much for my system and I felt very, very young, extremely young and I knew in this moment when I just couldn't tolerate the the impact of of just even being alive, I knew that I needed to be held, I needed to be hugged, and felt this kind of uh, uh, to use a word that Sharda mentions in a conversation we had, I felt very dysregulated. I didn't feel, didn't feel settled. And so I, need, I needed to be held and there was no one there, obviously, to hold me. So I, I looked over at my, cushion, my uh, f- futon that had all those extra pillows <laughs> that I brought. I took one of them, wrapped my arms around it, and I hugged myself. And I started to weep. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept. Just the natural discharge of being human and facing the Sankara Dukkha. And then from that place of self-care, I looked at the room and all the stuff in it, and I had this thought, Oh, all of that stuff. All those extra clothes that I've been planning getting in different colors. mine gets crazy. All those clothes <laughs> were an attempt to try to... Uh, that was the way I tried to soothe myself, to hug myself. To give myself some relief. And in that recognition that all that seeking was an attempt to soothe myself, my, in that moment my heart just Cracked. And this deep wave—I'll call it deep, but don't get caught up in deep. But this wave of self-compassion came, and an appreciation that almost everything I had ever done in my life, to try to, uh, that seemed really um, unwise, was some attempt to give me some relief, to soothe myself, to hug myself. And that little bit of self-compassion that came out of that intense moment of being so overwhelmed has never left to this day, this almost default tendency to come to my own, to sit beside myself, to come to my own rescue. And so it, it really is, at least in my own experience, very true that the cure for pain is in the pain, is to open to it. So that's the just the just a little vignette from my own practice but then I was thinking okay the buddha is called was called the happy one Sukhya. what does this have to do with happiness so sharda and maybe what I've just spoken about alluded to that it is not so much this basic dukkha, this basic fact that there are things that are hard to bear but it is how it is that we relate to our dukkha. So the Buddha's suggestion was on the first truth, that basic truth, basically said there are three things that you need to do. He operated a little bit like a, he was called a physician as well as the happy one, but he said that, he says first There is this, he gave the diagnosis, there's everything that Sharda spoke of last night, there are things that are really hard to be with, a lot of stress, a lot of, I don't need to go through the list again. He says, the second part of that first truth, the prescription, how to deal with it, open to it, welcome it. This is how it is. Be in harmony with truth as it is. And then the third part of the first truth is you want to be able to know inwardly, yes, this has been open to. This has been welcomed. You have to be able to feel that confidence that you felt something. So you can take any experience that you had today to the degree that you, it was unpleasant or difficult to bear and you just recognized it, open to it, and sustained a little attention to it you could say you fulfilled this this first noble truth. The Buddha didn't stop there. And even though the first is also the good news, everything we share is the good news. It's good news to know what's true. But the second, which may sound like that it's not such good news, is also the good news, the second truth. What turns that basic life situation that is filled with so much inherent unreliability and unsatisfactoriness what turns it into mental suffering what turns it, what increases and compounds our suffering and that sends us on that that wheel that Sharda spoke about that endless wandering fundamentally what keeps us, what keeps us locked in to a state of disharmony is a chronic tendency that all of us have to want things to be different than the way they are. Again, a survey. How many of you in the course of today wanted your experience to be different than the way it it is? If you don't have this tendency of mind, you're not one of us. This arises in our mind, that's the general, it rises in our mind in a few different ways. One is, as the, as the Buddha suggested, it is our tendency to want things to be different than the way they are, and it expresses itself as a a pretty regular desire for more pleasure seeking pleasure it is the i'd say the trance of our cult sure <laughs> we live in a cult where there is a lot of information shared that the that you need to consume to be happy and there is a lot of propaganda. The consumer machine, the marketing machine, needs to keep us greedy to keep going. And it and it promises a, a kind of salvation, and that even the advertising is clever at how it even uses our yearning for happiness to. <laughs> Encourage us to shop as the one advertisement that's often shared here I'm not the only one who shares it. There's a, a guy with piles of stuff and a new vehicle and Says to be one with everything you have to have one of everything and <laughs> and, it, and it's really an advertisement for some kind of Ford pickup truck and, and But it also expresses itself as the, a constant search for a, a partner, uh, for um, drugs, for alcohol, for sensuality in general. And all these things of this world that... We seek after, it's understandable. We love ourselves and we want to experience some relief. And they give us a little relief. The things of this world, the things that we devote ourselves to, what the Buddha called that we put, what he suggested is we put misplaced faith in these things, they give us some pleasure. But they they also have their defects. The pleasure has a very short is very short-lived with most of the things that that we seek after And after we have enjoyed that pleasure there's often a feeling of dukkha. there's a feeling of loss. And it's something that we fail to notice is that when we are Also, when we are in a state of wanting, even though the surface image of what I want to happen is so beautiful, so hopeful, gives me a a subtle kind of pleasure, the underlying experience of being in a state of wanting things to be different and being caught in what it is that I want to happen the underlying state is a state of tension. And it is coloring, we don't even notice it until we notice it, it's coloring our perception and making it seem that I can't be happy now. I can't find relief now. And that my happiness, my very well-being depends on satisfying that desire. The Buddha called this kind of happiness that depends on satisfying hunger, satisfying a desire, that depends on conditions being the way that we want them to be, he called this worldly happiness. And that's most of the kinds of pleasures that we experience in our life. Does that sound like good news? <laughs> to see this as a, is a, a beautiful thing, though. Often, an example, and I don't know if James did this in the hall, but I learned this from James the first time. Most of us, over the course of a sitting reach that point where there may be some unpleasantness and out of that unpleasantness comes a little reaction of dislike. And that dislike creates a little internal pressure and that pressure then generates a thought of what might make me happier. Any of you ever have that? And usually it's the bell ringing. (laughs) The secret to happiness becomes the the ringing of the bell. And we're waiting and waiting for the bell to ring close to combustion getting more and more tense the bell rings and we let out our cosmic sound, ah And we fall right into our usual delusion thinking that it was the bell, even though it's kind of conventionally true, the bell is what gave us the relief. But what we begin to notice as we open to the state of mind of wanting or waiting, expecting, that state where we are in some ways, in a state of suspended happiness, if we start paying attention to that, we see that it's not necessarily the bell that gives us the relief. What gives us the relief is the fading away of that feeling of waiting. The objects of waiting and wanting are endless. And once we start opening to that waiting, wanting, expecting mind that we are so well trained in, in following, that never is thirst, what's sometimes called tanha or craving, otherwise known as unslakable thirst, not possible to fully satisfy, because not only does it, that relief last just a, a moment, it leaves in its wake the, the habit and a further tendency to think we have to go out in search of relief. Whereas the teachings, the practice that you're doing, why in some ways we open to the feeling of of wanting, these states of mind, I want that bell to ring. Instead of staying in the story of the, the picture of the bell, we feel what it's like to want. And when we feel that experience of wanting, that very experience, when unrecognized, sends us out, puts us into that state of tension, suspended happiness. That very state, one, once it is attended to, it, it begins to show its, its ephemeral, its changing nature, just like everything else. And often that feeling will pass away of wanting, the bell hasn't even rung, and we have already arrived at the place that we had been searching for, but we're no longer postponing it. We're no longer waiting to be where we are. We are always where we are. This tendency to topple forward that's been talked about by all of us in some way, to, I think of it as sometimes, be obs- the obsession with what's next. Always moving on. Waiting for the weekend. Waiting for the vacation. Waiting for the partner. Waiting to get rid of the partner. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's true. There's, we can really see this activity in our mind on a retreat because this often, in terms of waiting for a partner, there, somebody may show up, as I mentioned the first night, that really lights your fancy and triggers a pleasant feeling. It's very quick and very innocent, but a pleasant feeling arises. And then you like that feeling. You, then you project it on the person. You like that person. And then the pressure of liking and wanting is that it generates a, a, just a, a waterfall of fantasy. And pr- before you know it, literally within the span of a few minutes, you are, you're fantasizing about them, you're dating them, you're mating them, you're traveling, you're <laughs> married, you're divorced, you're, you, you've been. Th- and the. And this is the flight, this is what we call papancha, the, the, the effusion of fantasy that takes us way beyond the simple reality of the, the living present. And it mostly entrances us into think that that person is the, um, is the secret to happiness. But if, if because we're not really following through on those kinds of fantasies during the course of the retreat, we're attending to them with our kind attention. We can start to feel the pain of being in that state of wanting and then meeting that pain with that kind of compassion that we, when we recognize my mind is fairly constantly in a state of seeking and that is a state of dukkha. And embraced by the by kind attention we recognize that that state of mind, as is true with all states of mind, that state of mind is a changing condition. It's just another weather front. We call that whole complex of wanting a person, we call it the, the Vipassana romance. The reverse is also true. The v, It's called the VV, the Vipassana vendetta, where somebody triggers an unpleasant feeling and then... And then you you're, you build a whole identity in your mind about your how yourself and how they're affecting you. Isn't it amazing that whole little story of how they're affecting your practice? Any of you have a vv? I'm sorry, <laughs> but all about them and it be, and if only they were different and. But it's a very strong reinforcement of this this virtual sense of me that alternate universe that. Sharda spoke about that person that you're imagining who's being affected is the imaginary version of you. And what's being left behind in a state of suspended well-being is your tender mind and body that's sitting right here. A leg that's falling asleep right now. So in our practice, we don't make any of that wrong. We recognize this is part of the, of the s- cause of suffering. This all the variations on the desire for things to be other than the way they are, and how it keeps expressing itself as this constant search to get rid of, or to have more, or to continue um, into some place where we will finally be happy, become someone who we always dreamed of that we would be. And this is not to say we don't, shouldn't have aspirations and dreams, but often this state of associating our happiness with what happens next leaves us unable to recognize, and I really feel it now as I sit here in the room with you recognize the, the beauty and wonder and, and amazingness of who and what we are as we are, right where we're sitting, right where life is touching us. So we deprive ourselves of feeling this kind of immediacy, a kind of sufficiency that no person no place, no thing can ever satisfy. And feel ourselves in that direct way where we are not defined by what we're lacking. We're, not, we're no longer seekers in a constant state of seeking that we're actually finders. That we find our way back to ourselves. To, as one poet says, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Mm-hmm. He says, take the love letters down off the bookshelves, the, the angry notes. He says, peel your own image from the mirror, sit and feast on your life. So, this is why it's so essential that we open to and begin to relinquish this second truth, the cause of suffering, which is this constant state of of waiting, of wanting, of seeking. As Hafez says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, the great pull in us to connect, why not become the one with the full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? The Dalai Lama put this tendency to go out in search, to be caught in a state of suspended happiness, put it in very worldly terms where he said, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, people. (laughs) He actually said man, but I wanted to include everyone. Because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present nor or in the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So you are, you have given yourself such a beautiful gift of life here. Not the idea of your life. Not the idea of your life situation. That's a story. But the felt experience. And in every moment that you taste the felt experience here, you're actually fortifying yourself to deal with your life situation. To, to know that you have within you the medicine that you need to, to be, stay home as, you, as your heart opens, as you deconstruct reality, as you open your eyes to the enormity of pain of injustice, of everything that that needs our love. We have to be whole. We have to stay at home. Our seeking the sense of well-being elsewhere, the second noble truth, keeps us on a very narrow, deluded pathway where we imagine continually Tell me if this is true. or In your mind, tell me. <laughs> on this little narrow imaginary pathway that pictures us coming from the past, passing through the present, on our way to the future when everything is going to get worked out. And that little dream, that little dream is very narrow. And time, and it's always about time, and then The only problem with time is it's always running out. So we're always getting a little more anxious because maybe I won't get where I want to get to. Any of you ever worry about that? Because in that little trance called the trance of time, we believe that the end of the rainbow is in a future that never arrives because the future is now it's it's a thought it's part of that unfolding present now of course we have great aspirations creative aspirations we our compassion and our caring wants to provide meditation to everybody in the world wants everyone to know the good news that you can come back to yourself, that you can wake up independent of circumstances. And so we may plan to execute our our vision, but the tendency, and what our practice shows us is our tendency is to think that we have to wait until we have everything finished, the project finished, the job done, everything fulfilled before we can relax. And so we we leave ourselves in that state of, of suspended happiness. So this is the first night when I, or one of the nights I said that when the Buddha was asked if one could come to the end of their suffering, the end of the cosmos, the, the liberation of the heart by going, he said no. But he said, but only those who reach the end of the cosmos become liberated. Where is that? That leads to the third truth. The Buddha, human like us, with death as his guru, wasn't a person. It was seeing the reality. A 29-year-old guy sees sickness, sees old age, sees death, says, hmm, this is going to happen to me. Not very reliable here. If If I have youth... Youth is not going to make me happy. I can't get so enchanted with youth because it gives way to aging. Health, not so reliable. I Can't be so enchanted with good health. Love to have good health. Want to do everything I can to have good health, but I don't want to, I don't want to devote my life. I don't want to have my identity based on health because that pride will be shattered and life as we've said not very reliable <laughs> so at that moment of recognizing that his his enchantment with youth of, with health with life phew, he said i've got to find i've got to find something more reliable and he saw that everything he'd sought up to that point was like I described, a state of having things and going places and doing things and short shelf life. Gorgeous, pleasurable experiences, wonderful experiences, great delights, tastes, smells, sights, beautiful interactions with people, great joy from, and happiness from doing something nice for somebody, from being generous for for having wholesome qualities, so much pleasure in life, but not really reliable. All the things that make a great life, he said, they're things that make a great life are having resources and sharing them, using them well, and being free of debt, not owing anybody anything. That's a really wild one for our culture. <laughs> but the last one is to be, is to be blameless, to ha- to have the pleasure of, of not causing harm. James may elaborate on this a little bit more. But all those, all, even that just makes it possible to enjoy the senses a lot more. But then he saw that's not, that's all this worldly happiness. He saw that's not a reliable kind of happiness. Incredibly pe- pleasurable, but not reliable also called it the happiness of hunger, the happiness of, of bondage. So he, his, just seeing that really clearly, he dropped it. In a, and he experienced a kind of joy of, of renunciation. And that's when he sat, did elements of what we're doing here. And he directed his attention to real time, Awareness. And he gathered his attention and he sustained it just in the same way that we are. And with it came the qualities that come with the gathering of our attention. He felt an incredible sense of comfort, an incredible sense of aliveness and rapture, and an intense interest in what was happening. Elements of what you may have sensed in moments today when your mind and body kind of came together. And he felt this effortless one-pointedness. And in that coming together and that harmonizing of his mind and body, he felt suffused with a kind of joy, a kind of happiness. He called it an unmixed happiness because as his mind and body were in the same location, harmonized, unified, there was no shadow of any contracted state of I can't be happy now waiting, hoping, expecting looking elsewhere, averting restless, agitated dull, there was full attention and from that place of one pointedness he felt a deep kinship with all the life around him He felt he was at that sometimes described that single point that includes everything And he said, whoa, this is a lot nicer than those little crumbs I've been depending on that I had put my faith in. This is better than, than health, wealth, stuff. But then he realized that even that experience, as inspiring and as smoothing and harmonizing and liberating from our, our usual kinds of dependency and searching, he saw that even that experience, as sweet as it was, as sweet as it is when we touch that place of quiet, as inspiring as it is, it makes us want to keep going. It's a springboard for our practice. But he realized that's not reliable either. Eventually, even that experience will fade away. And once that happened, he knew that uh, he hadn't found a reliable happiness. hadn't found a reliable refuge by just entering into uh, beyond the mundane states. But there was no one else to, just like death was his guru, there wasn't a person, there were no people anymore that could tell him, one of the great teachers of that time had told him to do this, this collectedness practice. But then there was no one to help him anymore. But he was so committed to satisfying that one desire that no other desire can fulfill, that desire for, for freedom. Not to be a desire to be off of that endless wheel of dissatisfaction that keeps us running away from this moment by running after things. Caught in that wheel of time, he wanted to once and for all step out of time into the, into the timeless present. Into the living present, which is so different from past and future. There Really, just mental. So he decided, I'm just going to sit here. Well, actually, he didn't do that yet. What he did next was he tried to, to transcend the, the human plane by starving himself, by practicing renunci- uh, self mortification practices. Uh, ascetic practices, and he became so so weak, so tired, his mind became weak, he couldn't practice. And then he realized going to the extremes of sensual indulgence hasn't made anybody happy, truly happy. Going to the extreme of self-denial just withers your mind. And it was at that moment he realized, after remembering, that some measure of being comfortable, some measure of enjoying the world of the senses, satisfied, eating well, drinking, resting, that some measure of comfort was necessary to to awaken. And he realized that there must be a middle way that's That incorporates a little bit of renunciation and a little a little bit of renunciation of the dependency, the misplaced face that we put in in sense pleasures, but enough to gladden our heart, make us pleased have our senses, these amazing senses, have them be pleased enough to um, to um, give us some little, even if it's a temporary measure of satisfaction. It seems like those who don't have enough food or are not held enough end up spending their whole life searching for it. And when we, So we have to have enough. So this is not a practice of denial. It's not a practice of doing away with sense pleasures. As one Zen teacher put it, Renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away, that they're unreliable. And later on the Buddha said, if you aim for this highest happiness, the happiness of freedom, then in the wake of that you get all the other kinds of pleasures too. But you're not, it's not your medicine. It's not, it's not something you depend on. So he sat and he used the same gathering, sustaining, moment to moment attention that we are developing here, determined not to get up until he found what he was looking for. And the same thing that you've been dealing with he was assaulted by all of the tendencies of mind that say that say i don't want you to do any harm but don't stay here keep moving get busy you know our whole culture is built on on the voice of mara the personification of that voice in us that tells us to keep busy to get active to get involved not that we shouldn't get involved but but there's a kind of persistent compulsion to move. One of my favorite editorialists says and we've really bought that kind of view and the editorialist says if you, the answer to almost every question somebody says, how are you? You say, busy. <laughs> how was your week? Good, busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. <laughs> I'm, she says, we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things. She says, most often she thinks this is our our knee-jerk response. But she goes on to say, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? (laughs) Her idea is that it's because of the advent of coffee bars (laughs) and coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. But then she goes on to say, as kids are... Our stock answer to every question was, what would you do at school today? Nothing. <laughs> what would you learn? Nothing. She says, I'm starting to think that, like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. <laughs> we need to reintroduce it in our grown-up vernacular. So the Buddha was faced with the same voices in his mind that says, the way, the way out is out. But he began to, because his he had strong mental strength. He began to see those voices in his mind as just voices in the mind, those tunes that, that Sharda invited us to notice today. The, the, we start to see those common themes that float through our mind like clouds, the planning mind, the judging mind, the comparing mind, the analyzing mind, the, the interpreting mind, the, <laughs> often the mind that says... I'm not okay the way I am. That's also Mara saying that you need to be different. You need to do something. You need to go somewhere to be different. And misses the fact that this is just, as she said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. That's Anagarika Munindra. A thought of yourself is not yourself. It's a thought. So the more the Buddha paid attention to the flow of experience, the stronger his attention got, just as yours is getting stronger. And maybe it's likely that nobody here, well, I can't say that absolutely, but it's likely that your life situation has not changed a lot since you got here. But you have dropped in to the middle of it and are likely noticing independent of your circumstances of your life of your life situation you are a little bit more present a little bit more peaceful maybe even moments a little happier not because you figured it all out not because you became something great and satisfied that insatiable, maniacal need to be special, but because you let your specialness be realized by the simple reality of what you are, where you're sitting. That there's nothing more inherently special and awesome, miraculous, unexplainable than your immediate direct experience right where life is touching you. And you start to get a glimpse of that. Buddha was the same way. The more he stayed, the more he paid attention, the brighter, it was as though it was like rubbing, rubbing sticks together, the brighter his mind got. And it got more and more clear Because every moment he was just, by noticing, his senses were getting clearer and clearer, brushing the dust of memory. As one teacher put it, until the clear mirror of his mind was laid bare. So everything became reflected more clearly. And he saw, and you see, can see, more directly, that everything that arises in your mind, in your body, state of change. Everything that arises in your mind and body that's in a state of change is not something that can be clung to and give any kind of reliable relief. And anything that arises and passes of its own accord, not according to anybody's will or, will or wish, cannot be said to be me or mine. It is a selfless process, as James says. Mentioned the other night. And we begin to see this. We begin to see the whole display of our lives as Sharda was mentioning last night. Arising and passing. And as the Buddha noticed the arising and passing of things. He saw with greater intensity, greater sensitivity, the futility of trying to hold anything. And he began to see that his mind getting brighter and brighter was luminous. And he was more, began to be more interested, not so much in what was coming and going, although that was amazing, but much more interested in the mind that was knowing it. And he said, wow, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And boy, does it get colored by all the things that visit usually. People who don't meditate, they don't understand that, so they don't don't cultivate their minds. But then he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And this luminosity, this nature of my mind, it's untouched by whatever visits And he realized, I'm not affected by this. And he began to feel this great joy, this great happiness of sometimes called vipassana happiness or the happiness of equanimity. He wasn't grabbing anything, wasn't pushing anything away. He was simply resting in this kind of impartial, open, steady awareness. And he realized this is the first taste of what he called lokuturasukha, uh, unconditional happiness, a well-being, a happiness. Still doesn't deny the dukkha, but a well-being and happiness that doesn't depend on Circumstances. Doesn't depend on my life situation. That is available for everyone. And as he sat there, his mind unstuck from the flow of usual experiences still coming and going, but unstuck from grabbing, his mind relaxed, body relaxed, and his mind opened. And he realized that the reliable refuge that he had been searching for was none other than the unconditioned, deathless nature of his own mind intrinsically, primordially free. He had been spending so long going out but he turned the other way and he woke up. And what he experienced was intense sense of freedom, freedom, a cessation of grasping at ideas, of situations, of, of things, of people, situations. The cessation of that reactive mind kind of falling away. Beautiful description of this kind of Opening came from a, a nun named uh, Tijitsu who was at a monastery and she was standing on a small porch and she saw the shadow of a little wren. This is, you can sense the, the quietness that was able to see this process. She saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow and she saw the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that falling away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So n- not only does our practice lead to this so-called highest happiness, the happiness of peace, of freedom, of the cessation of searching, the third noble truth, it is, um, I forgot what I just said, but it, it's what we're doing here. And the last guru I will leave you with to encourage you in your practice is a little duck from the poem called The Little Duck by Donald Babcock from the New Yorker magazine October 4th, 1947. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the shore, the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck. And he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion. And the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. So let's, let's cuddle in the swells right now. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. All beings awaken to the highest happiness. Thank you for your long enduring attention. 25 minutes for walking, and then we'll sit and there'll be some chanting at the next sitting. Be happy.